Calorophobia. Macy, have you ever heard that term before? I have not. Well, it means, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, an irrational fear of clowns. Now, have you ever experienced an irrational fear of a clown? Not a clown, no, but plenty of irrational fears. Yes, I I can testify to that, but I didn't think you ever were afraid of clowns. No. Well, maybe you will be when you hear some of the famous people who are. Mm. Johnny Depp, for one, is deathly afraid of clowns. He's afraid of clowns? Evidently. Hmm. Daniel Radcliffe, Mm. i.e. Harry Potter, is also afraid of clowns. The rapper P. Diddy. He is so afraid of clowns that he actually has it written into his contract that there can be no pictures of clowns, there can be no clowns, there can be no references to clowns on his sets, in his dressing room, or at his concerts. So, evidently, there are some people out there who do have an irrational fear of clowns. You know, in popular culture, this is usually played for laughs. On the Big Bang Theory, Sheldon frequently makes reference to his well-known fear of clowns. On the old television show Frasier, one time, Frasier dressed up like a clown to scare his father. He jumped out from behind a door in clown makeup. Martin saw him and promptly fell down from a heart attack. So it's evidently a real thing. Now, the word itself... It's fairly new. It wasn't added to the dictionary until the 1990s. After some people got so spooked by characters like the Joker or Pennywise the Clown in Stephen King books that psychiatrists began to treat it as a real phobia. Now, does this seem kind of funny to you? Yes. Yeah, me too. Um, (laughs) That that someone would, would really be deathly afraid of someone dressed up in clown makeup. Now I can see a little kid who's never seen it before, but for that to carry into adulthood, it just doesn't seem real to me that that someone would be afraid of of someone whose sole function is to entertain children, like like Bozo the Clown or Krusty the Clown from The Simpsons. But then again, maybe, just maybe, it's not that silly after all. Maybe we should be afraid of clowns. Or specifically, maybe in the 1970s, long before the term chlorophobia was even invented, people should have been afraid of one clown in particular. Maybe they should have run away when he approached them. So sit back with the Joker. That's the cocktail, not the clown prince of crime. And consider the tale of John Wayne Gacy, the killer clown. John Wayne Gacy grew up in Chicago in the 1940s and 50s. His father was a hard-drinking auto worker who, like many men of that era, had certain expectations for their sons. They should be mere images of their fathers, well-behaved, respectful, hardworking, and above all, real men. John Wayne Gacy was not, in his father's opinion, 
any of these things. He was nearsighted, overweight, and sickly. Between the ages of 14 and 18, John estimated that he had spent almost a year in the hospital. On more than one occasion, his father would go into his hospital room, curse at him, tell him to get up, and accuse him of faking just to get out of school or work. He was the target of both physical and verbal abuse by his dad. His mother would try to intervene and protect him. His father would attack her and then turn to John and call him a sissy and a mama's boy and once told him, you're probably going to grow up to be queer. When he was seven, he and another boy were accused of fondling a neighborhood girl. His dad beat him with a razor strap. Around this time, one of his parents' neighbors, a building contractor, began sexually abusing John. But John never told his father about this, afraid that he would be accused of lying and be beaten. He never graduated from high school. But despite all of this, John always seemed to present a positive, almost charismatic attitude to people outside his family. He was considered to be outgoing and a natural leader. At the age of 18, in 1960, he became active in local politics, supporting John Kennedy, and he was appointed an assistant precinct captain in the Democratic Party. But at home, things were not getting any better. His father agreed to buy him a car, but if John was late with a payment, his dad would take the keys until John paid him. He finally wised up and had a duplicate key made, but when his father found out about this, he took the distributor cap and hit it. This was the final straw for John. When he scraped the money together to make the last payment to his father, he packed his belongings and headed west, finally settling in Las Vegas. When he got there, he got a job at a funeral home as an ambulance attendant, and soon they moved him to the funeral side of the operation where he became a mortuary's assistant. He was fascinated watching the undertakers prepare bodies for burial. He had been there about three months when, one night, he crawled into the coffin of a teenage boy. He began cuddling and caressing the boy's body. But suddenly, he realized what he was doing. He was in shock. He began to cry hysterically and called home, asking his mother, Will Dad let me come back to Chicago? She talked to her husband, and John Sr. said that he could come home. On his way back to Chicago, he stopped in Springfield, Illinois, and enrolled in a business college, even though he had not graduated from high school. He graduated in 1963 with a degree in business. He was hired by a shoe company as a manager trainee and soon became one of their top salesmen. Eventually, he was promoted to manager of his department. In Springfield, he also became involved in a men's service and social organization called the JCs, or the Junior Chamber of Commerce. He became a leader in his local chapter and was named the third most outstanding JC in the state of Illinois. Around this time, he married one of his co-workers, Marilyn, 
Her father owned three Kentucky Fried Chicken restaurants in Waterloo, Iowa. John and Marilyn moved to Iowa, and John managed the restaurants. His parents had retired, and when they moved out of their house, they told John and Marilyn that they could have it. John did an excellent job managing the stores and was making a very good salary, $15,000 a year, which today amounts to over $120,000 a year. His parents visited him in Waterloo, and when John saw what his son has accomplished, he apologized for the abuse, shook his hand, and said, Son, I was wrong about you. John was very popular with his employees and converted a room in his basement to a club where the male employees could come to drink and play pool. John would also take the opportunity to make passes at the young men. If they objected, he would tell them that he was just joking or that it was a test. He was testing their moral character. If they didn't object, well, you know. In 1968, the son of one of Gacy's fellow JCs told his father that John had invited him to his house to show him some porn films. At his house, Gacy sexually assaulted the 15-year-old boy. He denied it, but he was arrested and charged with sodomy. While he was awaiting trial, he paid another man $300 to beat up the boy and discourage him from testifying. He was charged then with intimidating a witness, as well as the sodomy charge. He was convicted and sentenced to 10 years in prison. His wife divorced him and took their two children. John never saw any of them again. In prison, he was a model inmate, and he was granted parole after serving 18 months on the condition that he return to Chicago and live with his mother. His father had died while he was in jail. When he returned to Chicago, he got a job as a cook. His mother helped him buy a house in the Norwood Park area of the city. His neighbors remembered him as very friendly and helpful. He would shovel snow, mow lawns, do whatever it took to help his neighbors. In 1971, he started a business called PDM Contractors. It was very successful and grew quickly. Eventually, having annual revenues of $200,000. In 1972, he married Carol Hoff and adopted her two teenage children. When they married, he told his wife that he was bisexual. With the stress of running a business and trying to keep a marriage together, John felt he needed an outlet. He created two personas for himself, clowns. One, a happy clown, he named Pogo. The sad clown, he named Patches. He would frequently march in parades, do fundraisers for the JCs, visit children's hospitals while dressed as a clown. He said he just wanted to make people happy. His contracting business hired a lot of young teenage boys. It became a pool of potential abuse victims. He would often invite the boys to his house and tell them that if they wanted to keep their jobs, they would have to have sex with him. All of this happened with his wife and her two daughters asleep upstairs. In 1972, he crossed a line. He picked up a 16-year-old boy at a local bus station and took him on a sightseeing tour of Chicago, then back to his house. 
he told him he would take him back to the bus station in the morning. During the night, the young man made breakfast for Gacy, bacon and eggs. He walked into the bedroom to wake him up while he was just absentmindedly holding a knife. Gacy woke up, saw the boy standing over him with the knife. Gacy became enraged. They fought. He took the knife away and straddled the teenager, stabbing him multiple times. As the boy lay dying, Gacy watched him enthralled and later said, that's when I realized death was the ultimate thrill. He buried him in a crawl space under his house and covered the grave with concrete. Over the next six years, Gacy would kill over 30 more young men. Sometimes they were his employees. Sometimes it was people he met cruising around Chicago, especially near the Greyhound bus station. Some were male sex workers. They were all young, and many of them had no family in the area. They were the perfect anonymous victims. In the beginning, Gacy buried the bodies of his victims in the crawl space under his house. He would try to hurry the decomposition by covering them, covering them in quicklime. But the stench was overpowering. His wife and adopted daughters and even some neighbors complained of the smell. He told them it was water damage from a line that was leaking and rotting the wood under the house. He had his employees dig trenches under the crawl space, telling them that he would be using them to install new water pipes. Actually, unknown to them, they were digging graves for Gacy's victims. Eventually, though, the crawl space was full, and he began dumping the bodies in the Des Plaines River. Sometimes, though, Gacy wouldn't kill his victims. In a couple of instances, after the assault, they actually went to work for him. One moved in with him for a couple months. He picked up a young man named Jeffrey Rangel and beat, raped, and tortured him, but instead of killing him, left him in Lincoln Park, unconscious but alive. Rangel eventually testified against him. In 1978, Gacy went to a drugstore and met a young man working behind the counter. He told him that he owned a contracting business and would pay him more than twice what he was making at the drugstore. Robert Peast was 15 years old. He was supposed to meet his mother for dinner, but he called her and told her he would be late because a guy wanted to talk to him about a contractor job. Gacy took him to his house, raped him, killed him, and dumped his body in the Des Plaines River. Peast's mother called the police, and they discovered that the store owner remembered Gacy talking to the young man. They interviewed Gacy, but he denied any knowledge of Peace or his disappearance. They obtained a search warrant for Gacy's house and found several suspicious articles, such as rings, jewelry, car keys, underwear that was much too small for Gacy, but nothing linking him to Robert Peace. For the next few months, they placed Gacy under surveillance. He was constantly trailed by detectives. Neighbors would ask Gacy who was in the car, and Gacy would laugh and say, oh, it's just some cops, they're trying to pin a murder on me. And they would all share a big laugh. 
Sometimes Gacy would actually invite the detectives into a bar and buy them a drink. Other times he would play cat and mouse with them, getting in his car and speeding, losing them, letting them catch him, and then speeding away again. It was a big game for him. The detectives interviewed a couple of his employees, particularly Cram and Rossi. Rossi told them about digging trenches in the basement and how the basement would be marked with X's where they were not supposed to dig. He mentioned how Gacy would frequently stick his head under the house and watch to make sure that they weren't digging where they weren't supposed to. He and Cram told the detectives about Gacy having them spread quicklime in the basement to try to get rid of the wood rot smell. The cops went to Gacy's house again to interview him. While one of them was keeping busy, the other went in the bathroom and said that he smelled decomposing flesh coming from a heating vent. Based on this, they got another warrant, and this time they discovered body parts in the crawl space. Gacy was arrested and confessed to killing Peast and more than 30 other young men. He was indicted for murder. His defense attorneys had him examined by several doctors. All in all, he spent over 300 hours talking to psychiatrists and psychologists. Gacy tried to convince them that he suffered from multiple personality disorders. He said that he had four distinct personalities. There was the hardworking contractor who built a business from nothing. There was the clown. There was the gregarious, outgoing Democratic politician. And finally, there was Jack Henley, a cop who detested homosexuality. It was Henley, he said, who committed the crimes because the victims were weak, stupid, and degraded scum. He pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. His defense experts said that he was a paranoid schizophrenic with multiple personalities. The prosecution said that was baloney. He was in full control of his actions. The murders were premeditated, and he went to great lengths to cover up his crimes. At trial, two of his surviving victims testified. The jury took two hours to find him guilty of 33 counts of first-degree murder. The judge sentenced him to death by lethal injection. His appeals dragged on for more than 15 years, but on May 9, 1994, he was executed. His last words? Kiss my ass. A postscript. While he was in prison, Gacy took up painting. Most of his paintings were of clowns. Some of those paintings are selling today for more than $20,000. I will not be purchasing one of those paintings if I win the lottery. I mean, I can't anyway, but like if I won the lottery, I would not purchase one of those paintings. His victims' families bought some of the paintings, and uh, shortly after his execution, they held a bonfire and, uh, and burned them up. Well, that's good. But some of them are still out there on exhibition. Uh. Well, while you were reading, I had 
heard of a story during my research that you did not include that I thought was interesting. Please elucidate and share. Uh, I like that word, elucidate. I don't know that I've heard that. Anyway, so one of his surviving victims, I know the story of how he escaped. I was trying to find his name. I think it is Patrick Dottie, D-A-T-I, or it is Jeffrey Rignall. I'm not sure which one it is. But uh, he was a wrestler, and John Wayne Gacy, we'll get into this, but he would handcuff his victims and be like, you want to see a trick? I'll handcuff you. Uh, Watch, I can get out of handcuffs. You want me to show you how to do it? Get in these handcuffs. Well, this man got lucky because Gacy did not make his handcuffs as tight on one hand, so he was able to slip out. And Gacy like left to do something and then he came back and he sat back down looking like he was handcuffed. And then when Gacy came up to him, he like did a wrestler move, like when you sweep the legs, yeah, pin him on the ground. Yeah. And then I can't remember if he knocked him unconscious or something. Or he didn't knock him unconscious, but anyway, Gacy was like, If you I will let you go if you don't tell the police on me. And they had this deal and the guy kept it. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't know why. (laughs) Yeah, I read that story, too. And I think Gacy was uh, very complimentary to the guy and said, no one ever gets away from me. Good job. Oh, my uh, God. Hmm. Yeah, quite the quite the uh, evil man. Yeah, we'll get into that, too. Yeah. Decide. We have a point in our notes to discuss if he was evil or mentally ill or a little bit of both. So we'll get Mm -hmm. to that. But first. For today's Trends of the Crime section, I thought I'd discuss the evolution of clowns. So if you are really afraid of clowns and triggered by this conversation, maybe stop listening. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Never stop listening. Never stop listening. Just be scared and it'll be fun. (laughs) It's almost October, so be fun. So clowns have been around for a long time. They've been around since like ancient Greece and Roman times. Uh, Ancient Grecian clowns were bald and wore padded clothes to appear larger, and ancient Roman clowns wore pointed hats and were the butt of the joke. The white-faced clown was originally designed and uh, was originally designed by Joseph Grimaldi in 1805. It has its face and neck covered with white makeup, mouth painted in a grin, and black eyebrows. His clothes are extravagant, and he is a sophisticated character. He has the highest status in clown hierarchy. So if you want to be a fancy clown, I guess this is the one. Mm-hmm. We also have the uh, the uh, Auguste. How do you think you pronounce that? Auguste. I guess. Yep. August with an E at the end. Um, face painted pink, red, or tan. His mouth and eyes are painted white, and his lips and eyebrows are black. His clothes can be well-fitted or completely the opposite. His character is that of an anarchist, a joker, or a fool. He often parodies of a butcher, a baker, a policeman, a housewife, or a hobo. So we have a clown. We had a clown in our family. That's right. So what kind of clown was she? Aunt Helen was a, she uh, was a newspaper reporter up in Nebraska, but she would dress up as a clown and visit nursing homes. And I can't remember her name as a, what was her clown name? Do you recall? Well, we can't remember her clown name. 
And if, unfortunately, she's already gone to that big circus in the sky, so I can't call and ask her. But, uh, yeah, she would, uh, she'd wear, I remember she wore a hat, I think, with a little flower sticking out of it. Um, and big clothes. Big clothes, floppy shoes. And I think she was a silent clown. Oh, okay. I don't think she, I don't think she spoke when she was in clown makeup. Hmm. If I remember correctly. She was so cute. Yes. I also have some clown terminology for mm-hmm. kicks and giggles. Okay. Very important information. If any of us is ever on a trivia show, you're welcome. If you get asked one of these questions. Uh, clown alley. That's a part of backstage where clowns dress and where they hold their props. Boss clown. You can guess what this means. The clown responsible for leading the other clowns. He's the boss or she. Uh, Sherivari, a type of acrobatic clown routine. Carpet clown, a clown who starts his act from the audience or for a better comedic effect. First of May, a name for a novice performer without previous experience. And Trooper, a name for a performer with a considerable amount of experience, the one who has spent at least one full season with the circus, a seasoned veteran. Mm -hmm. So this is a real job, people. Indeed. (laughs) I'm just curious how many of our listeners out there who are, oh, of a certain age, (laughs) like me, uh, A lot of uh, TV stations back in the 1960s would have cartoons after school. They'd have a a show with a host. And a lot of the stations out there had a clown as the host. I'm just curious if anybody out there remembers that and what their clown's name was. The the first big one on TV was Bozo the Clown. And he's still around. You still see Bozo every now and again. Yeah, let us know on Facebook or... You can, if you have a story, you can email us at cocktailsofcrimeandfashion at gmail and we'll read your story or we'll tell everyone about it next week. Now, I have a, a little bit of trivia here. Uh, there was a clown on a, on a children's television show. His name was Clarabelle, Clarabelle the Clown. And uh, he never talked. Um, he just would have a, a little horn that he would honk like a little bicycle horn to honk when he wanted to say yes or no and uh the last day of of that show he looked in the camera and he started to cry and he finally said his first words he said goodbye kids oh that's sad but there's more to that story because later he took off his clown makeup and got his own show do you know who clarabelle the clown was Let's see, what year was it? It would have been in the 1950s. Dick Van Dyke? No. Uh, The other guy, Bob Newhart? Nope. Bob Keisham, also known as Captain Kangaroo. I don't know who that is. You don't know who Captain Kangaroo is? No. (sighs) Macy, Macy, You're my dad. You never taught me. Macy, Macy, Macy. (laughs) really a reflection on you not yes. me <laughs> we'll have i'm sure we can find some captain kangaroo shows on tv this afternoon Perfect. before the chiefs game and you'll get to see him all right awesome can't wait <laughs> while we drink our uh our the joker yes. cocktails perfect yes. segue 
Uh, Tell yes. us about the Joker. You've been prepping for this since I got here. I'm I, excited. I have been. Well, I wanted to find some cocktail that that had to do with clowns. Um, and it was hard. There were a lot. There there were a lot of Jello shots and things like that with different colors. But I wanted something a little more complex than that. And so I found, I found online a cocktail called the Joker. Um, it's uh, it's not something that you can just make off the shelf. I've had to, as Macy said, I had to prepare by making some cinnamon syrup. I had to make some lavender tea. That's part of it. One of the other ingredients is called chlorooxidine, which, uh, as I did some research, I found out that's liquid chlorophyll. It's a dietary substance. Sounds like poison. Yeah, well, the recipe calls for five drops of it. And uh, I found some for $25 a bottle. And I realized the only reason they were using it was to make the drink green. And so I thought, do I want to spend $25 on chlorooxidine? Or do I want to spend two dollars on some food coloring? So we'll be using the green food coloring, but it's a, it's a gin-based drink uh, that we've infused with some mulling spices that you might use. So it's a it's an autumn drink. Be good for Halloween if anybody wants to uh, wants to make some for your Halloween party. We'll see how it tastes. I have mm-hmm. no idea. We'll soon find out, though, won't we? We will. I'm excited. You'll probably take the first sip of this one. Great. Okay. Hey, that poison's not in it, so I'll, it'll be fine. But that's our cocktail for today, the Joker, for well, obvious reasons. The video by now should be on our Facebook group, so check it out. This will be a fun one. To get started with our discussion, I wanted to know more about this clown business. And John Wayne Gacy became a clown because he was part of the part of a moose club. Do you know what that is? Yeah, it's a it's is another, it like a country club. No, it's a lodge. Oh, okay. You know, like the like the Elks Club, just a, a lodge where men can go and dress up in funny hats and drink and play wow. cards. So no, it's a, sounds like a really safe place to be. There are all sorts. <laughs> there's the Elks Club. There's the Moose Lodge. There's the Odd Fellows. Hmm. It's like my worst nightmare. Yeah, anyway. and and most of you know a lot of these clubs have have died off now because right. young men don't want to join them, but. They're out there. My my stepfather was a was an odd fellow. Hmm. Interesting. Yes. John Wayne Gacy was a part of one. And as a part of his Moose Club or whatever the exact name was. Moose Lodge. Moose Lodge, thank you. There was the Jolly Joker Clown Club. Sounds kind of creepy. Mm-hmm. Uh I got this information from the article America's Deadliest Serial Killer, John Wayne Gacy played real life clown to get away with rape and murder of 33 young men by Pritha Paul. This was a club in the Chicago area whose members regularly performed at fundraising events and parades in addition to voluntarily entertaining hospitalized children. Gacy designed his own clown costume and makeup for his pogo and patches alter egos like dad talked about. His makeup was unique in the sense that it was a white mask with pointy blue eyes and a massive sinister-looking red mouth. Most clowns, and John did know this, did not like sharp corners because they scared children. Mm. So I guess he wanted to scare children Mm. (laughs) because he intentionally had pointy corners to his smile and pointy eyes, which makes sense because like Ronald McDonald has the rounded Mm-hmm. A smile and the rounded mm-hmm. eyes. Yeah. Very interesting, I mm. thought. 
Gacy was mostly described as a compassionate clown, but he admitted to feeling hatred when he let his evil nature slip into his clown persona. Here is a direct quote from the article. In a parade, what he hated was children who had gotten candy and wanted him to give them more candy. They were greedy, greedy kids, and he often said, what I would do is go up there and pinch them on the cheek like clowns do, but I would pinch and twist and then jump up and down the street laughing, happy, with a crying child left behind. Well, I know we'll talk about it later, but I'm thinking that's pretty evil. Uh-huh. I agree. Ugh. I'm just saying. I'm not a mom yet. <laughs> but if a clown does that crap to my child, I'm chasing that laughing mm-hmm. clown down the street, punch him in the you-know-what. Mm-hmm. If they do that to my little beau, my nephew, man. Yes. Gacy's home in Chicago was full of paintings and portraits of clowns. That's nice. And during a conversation with detectives during the years-long surveillance period, Gacy discussed his work as a clown, remarking, clowns can get away with murder, Mm -hmm. which essentially helped him get locked up. Yeah, yeah. So stupid. Yeah, and uh, I I read in, in one article that sometimes when Gacy would finish with an engagement at a hospital or a parade, uh, he would just go into a bar, still in his clown persona, and start drinking. I feel like that should be illegal. Yeah. If you're working with children, you should mm-hmm. not look like the way you work with children. Yeah. Hmm. Any other thoughts on his clown persona? Well, I, you know, I, th- this, this guy's hard to figure out. Mm-hmm. Um, on the one hand, he seemed like he was very open and gregarious and friendly, but there was certainly a dark side to him. And I think the clowns kind of represented that. He would go to children's hospitals and visit with kids and entertain them. But at the same time, he had a sadistic nature that the twist, I hadn't read that before about how he would twist kids' cheeks and make them cry. Um, Seemed like he was at war with himself. Two natures just not sure which one he wanted to be. Right. Definitely one of those men who it wasn't totally expected that he would do Mm -hmm. all of that, but we'll Mm -hmm. get to that. John Wayne Gacy did have two sisters, right? Mm -hmm. Two. Mm -hmm. And his younger sister, Karen, was his best friend. And this information came from a transcript from the Oprah show at one point when Karen spoke out about the fact that she was... Gacy's sister. She was the only one who still cared for him by the end of his life. And she had very conflicting feelings knowing that he was going to be put to death Mm -hmm. because she hated what he had done. She hated that she was related to someone who could do that. And, but then again, he's her brother. So Mm -hmm. I can, I can understand how difficult that would be. And there's a photo of the two of them on his final day, hugging and smiling. Mm-hmm. And people got really mad about that. Yeah. Yeah. I, it doesn't make me mad personally, because she didn't know him as a killer. Mm-hmm. But I understand the conflicting feelings, because it's like, it's also like, you don't want to spend his last day being mad at him 
I don't know. Yeah. It's hard. I, I was surprised, too, when I read that um, for his last meal, they actually let her come and have the meal with him. It was like a little picnic. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kentucky fried chicken, fried shrimp, strawberries. And um, it's not just some, that's not anything that would happen today, I wouldn't think. Right. I don't know. My my personal feelings on the death penalty are not, I don't necessarily agree with it, but it was nice that they let her be with him. Mm-hmm. And they had a nice last day together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. After after Gacy had died, she hid her past. She didn't tell people she had a brother. She never told anyone what her maiden name was. It was always her married name. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she did this for 31 years because she wanted, her main reason was she wanted her children and grandchildren to live a normal life and not be connected to this major serial killer. Uh, she tried to send gifts to John's children, but they were all returned. She's guessing that his first wife just wants privacy and wants nothing to do with him. So she respects that. Uh, she did decide to speak out. Karen decided to speak out to end the cycle of guilt that she feels for John's crimes. She's come to realize that his crimes are not her fault and that he made his own choices. And I feel like that's a pretty common phenomenon, like mm-hmm. family members of these serial killers or even someone who's just done one really bad thing, like school shootings or like the parents of the Columbine shooters. It's like mm-hmm. they tend to feel really guilty, but they didn't do it, you know, especially mm-hmm. in Karen's case. She wasn't his dad who had abused him. Mm-hmm. She was always his confidant. So she has no reason to feel guilty, but just one of those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I did read that uh, some authors tracked down his first wife. Oh. Uh, and she agreed to talk to them as long as they would not use her name or or tell where she was. Um, and she said when she heard about this, she was shocked. Um, she had no clue that that he would that he would do these things. I mean, she divorced him after the sexual abuse of the teenager back in Iowa. Um, but she never had any hint that he would become this sadistic murderer. Mm-hmm. And nor did his second wife, which which I thought was strange as long as we're talking about family. She lived in the house where he committed most of the murders and, and where a lot of the bodies were buried. They didn't get divorced until 1975. He committed the first murder in 72. Um, and um, she would hear things going on in the basement. She knew he brought young men over there and I'm not going to say she was okay with it, but she knew he was bisexual. She knew he was having encounters with with younger men. Um, and it took her three years to leave. And, you know, the smells in the house, you you have to wonder what, what she was thinking. Uh, and she's never, she's never spoken out except to say that, you know, she had no idea that he would do this. But I, I've always thought that was, that was pretty weird. Yeah, I I actually had that in my notes and then took it out because I, I don't know, didn't have enough research on it. But I thought that was odd, too, that that they smelled. They definitely smelled something. Mm -hmm. And I've always heard that the smell of death, there's nothing like it. Like him saying it was mold. Yeah. I bet they knew it wasn't mold. Sure. Because that's a pretty common smell. (laughs) Sure. 
I mean, you know, I've I've never smelled a dead human body, right. but we probably all smelled dead animals at some point. Mm-hmm. It's just a disgusting, disgusting smell. Right. Yeah, and and I actually saw on some on a video I watched about this case that he had told her right before he told her that he was bisexual. He said, "This is the last time that we will have sex, and I am bisexual." Mother's Day, in fact. Mother's Day. Yeah, I read that too. Weird. Yeah. And she stayed there for... I was going to say, I feel like I'd be like, okay, bye. This is weird. And she stayed there for two or three more years after that. So yeah. one just has to wonder what was what was going on there. Mm-hmm. Did you say no one has talked to her? Or that you no. saw? Uh, the no, second she, wife? She, has made, she has made public comments. I mean, her name's known. What'd she say? That, you know, well, she's never addressed this directly, but she's just, again, saying I had no idea he could do things like this. I was shocked, et cetera, et cetera. Hmm. I mean, I I get that. Mm-hmm. I, but like you, I don't understand why it took her so long to leave. Mm-hmm. If she knows that she's being cheated on over and over and he has this double life that she knows about but doesn't mm-hmm. know about. You know what I mean? Like she knew there was more to it. Right. Deep down. Hmm. Anyway. Well, well, let's, uh, before we start talking about his culpability, whether he was evil or mentally ill or both, um, there are some people who still believe that he was not, he did not act alone. I did see that. That he had accomplices, maybe not in the murders themselves, but at least in hiding the bodies and in two names continually uh, come up to uh, two people that, that worked for him for a time, a Mr. Cram and a Mr. Rossi. Um, they both admitted digging trenches underneath the house and they admitted spreading quicklime, but they said, we never saw any bodies. We had no idea of this, but uh, there are a number of, some of the prosecutors have looked back on the case and said, yeah, they probably at least helped dispose of bodies. Um, one of the victims who survived said that there was somebody in the background watching the rape and torture who hmm. um, indicated may have been one of these two gentlemen. So I don't know. Do you, What do you think? Do you think these guys knew about it and maybe cut a deal with the cops? Uh, or, or what do you think? Have you thought about that at all? I haven't thought about it, but I can definitely see it because... 33 people that we know of, that's a lot to mm-hmm. do on your own, mm-hmm. to kill on your own. I mean, I would guess. I, would yeah. Guess. Yeah. Um, I feel like it makes sense, especially because, I mean, he Gacy made a deal with, with the one survivor. Mm-hmm. So I can see him being like, hey, help me out with this. Uh, if If I get caught, I'll never tell them you helped or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can see it. How about you? Oh, yeah. I, I certainly think he, if these if these guys were so close, they were digging trenches in the basement, they had to have smelled what was going on down there. So I, I think they probably knew. And I wouldn't be surprised if there was some sort of a deal cut mm-hmm. with the police. Yeah. Um, the police investigation here, that that wasn't all on the up and up either. From what I understand, there are people who've looked back at this case 
and think that the police were less than forthcoming uh, hmm. with some of their statements. For example, uh, the cop that said he smelled the decomposing bodies when he went into the bathroom, and that's how they got the second warrant. A lot of people question that based on the time of year and what he supposedly said, that, that maybe that was made up in order to get a warrant because they never could find any evidence linking Gacy to any of the victims. Mm-hmm. But there had been these reports of the basement smells and maybe there's something down there. And there were, there were, there are people to this day who've read it and think, you know, that warrant probably shouldn't have been issued that the cop probably, probably uh, lied when he completed his search warrant affidavit. I mean, who knows? Um, you know, they, they, followed him around for over a year and they just couldn't find anything until suddenly this guy just went in the bathroom and said, Oh, I smell a dead body. That doesn't necessarily ring true to me, but you know, but I knows? feel like that's one of those gray areas. Cause I also think to be a detective and a cop, but more so a detective, you have this strong sense of intuition and they had been following him for mm-hmm. over a year. And it's like, maybe they like knew he did it, mm-hmm. but they could, they needed something to, push it along. So it's like, well, thank God they were right. Yes. Well, you know, and here's where my defense attorney persona kicks in. Not that I'm... <laughs> Be careful. John Gacy was absolutely guilty. And as far as I'm concerned, you know, he he got exactly what he deserved. But you can't, you're not supposed to be able to get a search warrant based on gut feeling and instinct. You've right. got to have some physical evidence. And saying but I smell... he saved a lot of lives, probably. I'm sure he did. I'm absolutely sure he did. Uh, I'm just saying, I think maybe, you know, this, this warrant was issued on, uh, on bogus grounds. But, you know, who knows? The other thing, at least six victims are still unidentified. Did you catch that in your research? I didn't know it was six, but I did know there were still some unidentified victims. Yeah, they're still, they're still doing DNA on, on bone fragments, and they're asking families who had... Uh, or people who may have had family members disappear in the Chicago area to come forward. They did identify one just a couple of years ago oh, wow. based on some DNA, which, which kind of leads back again to things we've discussed earlier back in the 70s. A lot of these people who disappeared and were his victims, he'd pick them up at a bus station. They were getting off buses coming to Chicago. Some of them were male sex workers or, or wanting to be male sex workers. When people would report that to the police, a lot of times the police just blew them off because, mm-hmm. again, they were not investigating these people. Right. Got more important still things a to do. Yeah. It still is. But so, you know, again, maybe he could have been stopped earlier. Yeah, that's that's very true. And I think a lot of policemen and, or police people and detectives maybe realize that later. And it's like, hmm, shouldn't have blown that off. Yeah. I mean, there haven't been any any public second guesses, but you you think some of these some of these investigators have to, in the dark of the night, when they think about it, look back and think, "Man, why didn't I take this more seriously? Could have mm-hmm. saved a lot of lives." Yep, it's sad, but also it's like I think again, it's playing devil's advocate. I would guess it's a very hard job because. When one person has died and even two people, it's like, and that happens. And then all of a sudden it's 33. You know what I mean? It's like, uh, I don't even know where I'm going with this. It's definitely wrong to 
Like they should not be saying, I'm not going to solve this because this is a sex worker, obviously. I don't think they said, I'm not going to solve it. I think right. they just thought, well, why, why are we looking for someone like this? They're probably. Right. They're probably not even dead. Like they probably went to the next place. Yeah. Yeah. So hopefully, hopefully that stops soon. We just have to remember every life is, is worth um, respect and dignity, mm-hmm. I think. Yep. And we have to remember that all of these men who died at the hands of John Wayne Gacy, we don't, they were all very young and they could have all done really great things. They all had families. Mm-hmm. And it was an awful thing. It was and is. So I guess our final question, John Wayne Gacy. Mentally ill or evil? I think he definitely had some mental illness, but definitely evil as well. More so evil because people, this is where it gets sticky because when you say someone like this did it because they're mentally ill, that makes people scared of people who are mentally ill. Mm -hmm. And, And most mentally ill people do not, become serial killers, of course. So I think he definitely was very evil. Yeah, he was diagnosed as a, as a paranoid schizophrenic. Mm-hmm. I'm certainly not a doctor, but we've already talked about there were, just, there were two sides to this man. The, the, the gregarious, loving neighbor and always had a hand out to help somebody. And yet at the other, other hand, didn't seem to have any remorse, didn't seem to have a lot of sense of these victims suffering. So I think there was that, but I I think clearly he didn't meet the legal definition of being insane. He right. knew exactly what he was doing. He planned these things. He carried them out. He covered it up. I, I don't, I don't think we can give him a pass on this. Mm-mm. So I, I, I agree with you. I, there was clearly something wrong uh, with, with him and his personality, but there's just a lot of evil going on here too. Did you mention his head injury? No, I did story. not. Mm-mm. He was hit in the head with a swing or something. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And some people think, well, a lot of serial killers had head injuries as mm-hmm. children. So that's just something else that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. One other interesting thing I didn't mention, too, and I'm sure you'll post a picture of it. There's a picture of him standing right next to First Lady Rosalind Carter. Huh. I didn't know um, that. He was in charge of a uh, parade in Chicago. Uh, for the Polish community, and uh, Mrs. Carter came, and uh, there's a picture of him standing right next to her, and he's wearing a little pin or label with an S on it that the Secret Service gives for people who are cleared to actually stand next to a protectee. Oh, wow. So here's this serial, and this was in 1974 or 5. No, let's see. No, it would have had to have been in 77 uh, because uh, Jimmy Carter was president. So here's this person who's probably already killed 15 or 20 people standing right next to the uh, the first lady hmm. uh, of the United States. Pretty weird. And that meant he passed a Secret Service background check. Right. They don't just hand these things out. So, <laughs> right. which, which, again, he was a convicted sex offender, too, at that point. But. There it he is. In the 70s, I guess. Yeah, there he is. So I'm sure you'll find that picture and post it. Yeah. Huh. That's that's wild. Hmm. This was a uh this was a good one. 
Yeah. I didn't actually know the whole story before researching it. And I don't know, I, I feel like it's a common misconception that he killed as a clown. Right. And he did not. No. He just was also no. a clown. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think I think the clown pictures that he painted in prison go into that, go into that rumor as mm-hmm. well. They actually in American Horror Story, I think it was the the season about the the asylum and there was Pogo the clown and it was like this clown with like big scary teeth and yeah. anyway that was obviously modeled after yeah John Wayne Gacy and I think that feeds into it mm-hmm. why I probably thought oh he killed as a clown yeah he did not so right. well thank you all for listening yes thank you let me see who we have next week we have the Great Train Robbery. Oh, that's a good one. I know nothing about this yet. Yeah, so we're getting away from murder back to a, back to another crime. Fun. Yes. Well, we will see you all next week. And uh, by the time you're listening, we will know what happened at the Chiefs game, but we sure don't know yet. That's right, but go Chiefs. So go Good Chiefs! This has been Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. If you're enjoying our show, please leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show. Join our VIP Facebook group, Cocktails of Crime and Fashion VIP, to discuss cocktails, crime, and fashion, and to watch exclusive video content. Follow us on Instagram at Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. We also have merch. There's a link in the episode notes. Cocktails of Crime and Fashion was written and produced by Mike Norland and Macy Norland Burkett. Our editor is Don Bailey at pretendmachine.com. Thank you to Alex Joaquim for composing our theme music and to Kaylee Bitter for designing our cover art.